I've entitled my message this morning, What Looks Like Healthy Religion. What Looks Like Healthy Religion, from the book of Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. We'll begin today, before our introduction of these thoughts, by reading this passage together. So I'd invite you to turn, if you don't have a Bible that you brought with you, you can find one in the pew, and read these passages as we read them aloud. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which, we, which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and holding not the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God." By the way, that's a confusing statement. It simply means that we're sustained by God, and as a body, Christ is our head. And as you know, the head is what gives the body its, its life. Without a head, a body can't live. A body can live without a lot of parts, but not without a head. Wherefore, continuing, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of this world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? And then this is a parenthetical statement of explanation, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Now, by the way, as we end today's message, we're going to read for you verses 1 and 2 because... We're going to hear a lot of things today that we don't need to worry about, maybe some threats against the church in Colossae, and we would also say in different ways, but similar ways, threats against any church today. And so let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. Well, as we entitled the message today, What Looks Like a Healthy Religion, we're going to consider some threats that the church at Colossae was facing, some looming dangers, you might call them, that were threatening them that to the uninformed person, probably to maybe even a lot of American Christians today, looked like a healthy religion, a healthy display of religion, but in actuality was a threat in their immediate area, in their day and age, because it sought to take their focus off of Christ and put their focus on the things that they do, specifically things that they do for righteousness' sake. Now, very specifically, you notice this, finally, as we've been discussing Colossians, we've mentioned to you over and over again that one of the threats that they were facing was some sort of an aesthetic, ascetic, angel-worshiping cult. And we'll define these terms in just a moment and talk to you a little bit about what each of these various threats meant to them, what they believed 
they were doing and the threat that was presented before them, what the false teachers in their day and age set before them as something they ought to do. But we've made reference several times to the fact that this church was threatened by a cult of angel worshipers. Well, finally, after two and a half chapters, we actually come to that specifically, not merely implied, but specifically referenced. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Now, throughout chapter 1, Paul is alluding to trouble and false teaching. Earlier in chapter 2, he's setting up the groundwork to discuss the false teaching. You remember, beware lest any man spoil you. And as we ended last week, let no man therefore judge you. Verse 4, I say this lest any man beguile you. There's obviously a problem that Paul is concerned about that's affecting this church at Colossae. And might I just say that I'm not in Colossae. I'm not Paul. I don't live in the first century. But there are things that exist in the world that make me equally afraid for each and every one of you. And when I preach on them, as Paul does, don't get upset with me. I love you, and I want to deliver you from the threats that are affecting you in your life because there's always some sort of a looming danger to a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We never escape it. But it's all the time in the world around us because the world has no shortage of devils. The world has no shortage of false teachers. The world has no shortage of imaginations. And though we like to encourage imagination in a child, in the King James Bible, the word imagination has reference to the sinful things or the untrue things that we conjure up in our minds. Sometimes those things can even enslave us and bring us into bondage. There's no shortage of imaginations in the world. And so there are always threats that have the potential of destroying your peace in Christ, as we will perhaps elaborate on as we get to beguiling you of your reward, and even to destroy entire churches as they're led into things that are not true and not biblical, their candlestick is threatened, their identity as a New Testament church is threatened, and any time heresy comes into a church body, that church body is going to be negatively affected by it, so much so that as we have remarked in this series, Paul would refer to that sort of thing as a cancer that eats away at the body, a gangrene, as it were, that eats away at the body and threatens entire church bodies that needs to be, as he would say many times, amputated or cut away. So, as we have been working to this point, we now come to the close of chapter 2 and the actual threats that were present in the city of Colossae that was apparently even beguiling and deceiving some of the followers of Christ in this community. I will say as we move through chapter 2 and come into chapter 3, chapters 3 and 4 deal more with practical aspects of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul spends some time talking about our relationship with Christ. He gives the threat that he's worried about here in chapter 2. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we learn about being a healthy church, being a healthy family, being a healthy follower of Christ that puts to death the lusts of the flesh to the glory of God. So we won't spend the next two chapters. It's taken us, I believe, 11 messages to get to this point. The next, however many messages, will not be dealing with this subject. But this is, as it were, the 
the finale of his warning to them. He gets to the point, you might say. You know that we preachers like to take a little bit of time getting to the point. If I just told you the point, the sermons would be about two minutes and we would go home. And there might be some people in America that would like that. That's a great church. Why is that such a great... That preacher doesn't spend five minutes talking. Well, it takes a whole lot longer than that for you to learn algebra, right? And this is a whole lot more important than algebra. You take algebra in school, it's an hour-long class or an hour-and-a-half-long class in some of these block system uh, setups, and then they send you home with a bunch of homework for you to do when you go home so you can learn equations. This is more important than algebra. I don't get an hour a day with you. I get an hour a week. That's it. So Paul, he elaborates and he takes his time. The journey, the journey is just as important as the destination when it comes to preaching and when it comes to discipleship. After all, we look forward to our destination, but we're on our journey as we're disciples of Christ. Jesus didn't just die on the cross and immediately every elect person from the first to the last is in heaven. There's a journey. And so preaching is a journey, teaching you messages and principles from God's Word is a journey. Paul takes two chapters of a journey to get to the main point that he's worried about. And so we'll spend at least an hour today talking about this main threat, and we'll consider it our journey together today. I want to begin today by noticing a word that we have already defined and remarked on over the last two messages, and it's found in verse 8, and it's the word spoil. And I want to remind you of this. Now, we so often today use the word spoil to have reference to something going bad. You might say, I looked in the fridge, there was a bunch of stuff in the fridge that had gone bad, it was past its expiration date, and because it was past its expiration date, it had spoiled. As a little kid, nothing was more disappointing than finding the tub of Cool Whip in the back of the refrigerator. Ooh, Cool Whip! And I think I can yank that top off and dig into it, and you open it up, and it's about as hairy as your head because it's grown mold. Well, what happened to it? It had spoiled. When we moved here, 2006, it was really funny. We found condiments and other items that had been put in the back of the refrigerator that we had here in the lunchroom that was purchased when I was still in high school in the mid-'90s. And so... Some of these things we probably need to throw away. We, we don't need to hang on to Grandma's pickles from the 1990s. If, if they sell those at Publix for pretty cheap, you can go pick you up some more pickles. You know, I know we don't want to waste anything and, you know, that sort of thing. But spoiling, we know, in our day and age means to go bad. Here, it carries more of the sense of to the victor goes the spoils or something that's taken captive when defeated. And so when Israel goes into captivity, they were, in a sense, spoiled. All of their land they lost, their homes were destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the gold and the silver that was all over the temple was taken away and carried into captivity. All the gold and the brass from the items in the temple was taken away. Their wealth and even themselves, they were spoiled as they were forced to be slaves, many times eunuch in the house of Babylon, they were spoiled. Now the idea that I want you to give you that I want you to get today, that I want to give you today, is that spoil in this sense means taken captive. Through the teaching of these errors in Colossae, men were being taken captive by these false teachings and by these false teachers. 
In other words, false teaching takes you captive and makes you a prisoner. People become prisoners to false teaching. What would be an Old Testament word that conveys this same notion? Israel found themselves in it many, many times. The word bondage. Now, Christ's teaching and being a disciple is to make you what? From John chapter 8. To make you free. Jesus uses a word that everyone in his presence interpreted as bondage, as freedom from bondage. How do I know that? Because when Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you'll be my disciples indeed. You'll know the truth and the truth shall make you free. They immediately, the unbelievers in his presence, immediately said, we're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage to any man. What a ridiculous statement to make. Uh, Did you forget about the Assyrians or the Philistines or the Egyptians twice or the Scythians? Can't forget about the Scythian invasion. Oh, and there was the Babylonian captivity where you were literally in bondage for 70 years out of your homeland. Did you forget about that? You've never been in bondage because you're Abraham's seed? How about uh, the Greco... Well, you got the Medo-Persians. That was a form of bondage, though they gave them their freedoms back to a great degree. And then you have the, the Greeks, and under the Greeks you had Antiochus that was just an awful tyrant prophesied of in the book of Daniel. Oh, and let's see, now it's Rome, and you don't have your autonomy as a nation in... in the Roman Empire, what are you even talking about? But they interpreted Jesus' promise of freedom as a statement regarding bondage, and this is all in the mind based upon what you believe and what you know. There is freedom that you can have in your life in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Conversely, if you don't have freedom through the gospel, what is it that you're living under? you are living in bondage. You say, well, I'm neutral. There is no neutral according to that paradigm in John 8. You're either in bondage to false teaching or you are free in Christ. And so again, to emphasize this word spoil, we've done it the last two sermons, but I really want to drive this point home. We can be taken captive by the things that false teachers say and teach by false notions. The greatest form of bondage and captivity that exists in this concept is in your mind as it relates to your identity in Christ and His saving you from your sins. You'll notice that as they, as Paul begins to confront the false notions that these people teach, it's all about legalistic works for righteousness' sake. How might that put the child of God in bondage? If you think that you have to do enough good works in a day or a year or a lifetime to be good enough to stand before God, your heart is always going to convict you because in your heart, where the Spirit of God dwells and the law of God is written, it knows, you know from the heart that you are a sinful person if you've been born of the Spirit. And you also know, because God's law is written on your heart, that I now know Him, and I fear Him, and I understand something, even though I maybe can't articulate it, that His standard isn't that the good outweighs the bad, but God's standard is perfection. 
And if I have anything in me that is less than perfection, then by my own righteous works, well, I am unworthy to stand before him. Does that make sense? And so when you hear those things and you embrace them and you believe them, it becomes a form of slavery to you. And as Paul would say, it's bondage. You are taken captive. You've been spoiled. You have been arrested, apprehended, and you have been brought into someone's dungeon through the things that you have been taught. Today we want to finally consider the specific problems that were threatening this church in Colossae. And we'll give them to you, one, two, three. Number one, from verse 16, some sort of legalism that was influenced by Judaism. Notice that from verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. How do we know that this isn't some sort of a a Roman holy day concept? Because Romans had their own holy days. This word, by the way, in, in the English language comes in as holiday. Do we have holidays in America? We do. We have Fourth of July. We have Thanksgiving. We have Christmas. We have Easter. Some of those are Christian influence. Some of those are just natural things like Memorial Day and Veterans Day. They're simply holidays. Well, the word holiday literally is holy day. Every culture has their, quote, holy days. They're sanctified days in a nationalistic sense that are set apart to be observed. How do you know that this is referring to Jewish holidays instead of Roman holidays? Because, look at verse 17, these days are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Roman holidays were not a shadow of Christ. Because this is a shadow, you're learning of days that were a part of the Old Testament because the Old Testament was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, a shadow of good things to come, according to Hebrews chapter 10. So that allows us to whittle down the various concepts that he could be talking about. What he has reference to in verse 16 are people who judge the Christians because the Christians were not observing the festival days or the restrictions of the law of Moses. And we'll say more on that in a minute. Number two, verse 18, angel worship. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. And so problem number two that they were facing was some sort of a cult of angel worshipers. We'll comment more on that in specific in a moment. Lastly, threat number three, asceticism, which is something that was a major problem in the early centuries of the church, and it was one of it was one of the reasons for the Reformation. Martin Luther was a monk, and he his eyes are open to the corruptions of the so-called church in that day, and so he writes his ninety-five theses, nails them to the door on October thirty-first. Everybody says Happy Halloween, and I'm over here thinking about nailing papers to doors, but. Part of his complaint was monasticism, the monastery, being a monk. What is it that monks did? They withdrew themselves from society and they lived a rigid, self-denying lifestyle, not in the biblical New Testament sense, but in the sense of, as we see in verse 21, 
Touch not, taste not, handle not. Paul would refer to these as the ordinances of the world in verse 20. If you're dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, Christ died, you were there represented with Him. If you were there with Him when He died, represented by Him on the cross, and then you rose again with Him and you're alive in Him in the new birth, why in the world would you be subject to the ordinances of the world? Think about the word subject here. We like to think that I'm subjected to, but the word subject actually many times has reference to someone who's under the authority of someone else. You'd have a king and his subjects, a prince and his subjects, a political authority and his subjects. If I am dead from this world in Christ, why would I live subject to the ordinance of this world, the ordinances of this world, specifically the touch-not, taste-not, handle-nots that the ascetic people would demand that others not touch, not eat, not enjoy to establish their own righteousness or further their righteousness in the world. So those are the three problems. Judaism influenced legalism, angel worship, and asceticism. Now as we go through this passage today and we consider this together, I want to challenge you to think in your mind of contemporary parallels. When's the last time you knew somebody that worshipped an angel? Well, I don't really know that I've ever known someone who just outright said, I worship angels. I have known some people who probably worshipped fallen angels, the angels that Satan took with him when he led his rebellion in the beginning of time. It had to be after time was created, after the world was created, because before then nothing was here but God well, and those are the devils, the demons that we read of all through the New Testament that Jesus is casting out of people. Surely, I've met people who worship those, but I don't know that I've ever met anybody who has worshipped an angel per se. But maybe we can think of some parallels in our mind of worshipping and invoking other people or other things, and we can make a parallel in our day and age. As we think about the asceticism, think of in your mind things that people say, you shouldn't do that. And if you do that, you're not holy when God's Word doesn't say not to do that. If God's Word doesn't say not to do that, then it's very thorough on what is sinful, then it's not sinful if you do that. If God's Word says that me as a Gentile, Christ fulfilled the law, I, I can eat bacon, praise God, you can judge me all day long. I'm not going to pay you any attention. I'm going to eat the bacon, and I'm going to praise God when I do it. There's a lot of things that fall under that category, some that affect us even today in our culture. So try to, in your mind, think of contemporary examples of this. It's an exercise I want you to go through. All right, so as we have heard these three threats, legalism, angel worship, and asceticism, we want to take these one, two, three. And so we'll go to verse 16 and begin looking at the threat of legalism from a Jewish perspective, you might say, in the lives of these Gentile believers. Now, as we introduce the concept of legalism to you, the first thing that I want to say is because you are complete in Christ, because you are complete in Christ, therefore, 
let no man judge you. Because you're complete in Christ, let no man judge you if you're not in their mind doing the right works for righteousness' sake. Now, does that mean that there's no place in a Christian's life for good works? No. We have chapter 3 and chapter 4 to help us understand things that are good that we do in the name of God, but these are not to establish our righteousness. This is simply because we love Jesus and we've set our affection on things above. We live by faith. And because of that, faith ought to be working itself out in our lives by doing good things by faith. And so many times the good things that God would have us to do by faith are not as impressive as the things that people would imagine them to be. Just think for a moment at the first century of the first century Pharisee and and how these men would go about with frontlets between their eyes. They made broad their phylacteries. And they would wear these long robes, and they would go about wincing in their faces while they boasted of how many days that they had fasted. As they stand on the street corners and they pray and they pray and they pray, and Jesus says they do all of those things to be seen of men. That looked really impressive. How impressive did it look for Mary and Martha, one to worship Jesus and the, others, the other one to make Jesus and the disciples a meal. That didn't look very impressive, did it? But done by faith as adoration to God and worship to Him, that's far more impressive in reality, if you want to use that term, than the Pharisee standing on the street corner with a big block with a Bible verse. That's what a front lid is, a block on his forehead with a Bible verse with a long robe wincing because he's been fasting and he wants everyone to know as he offers eloquent prayers for everyone to hear so everyone knows he's religious. That's the threat here. That's the threat. Again, it doesn't mean that there's no place for doing good works. We are to always be out and about our Father's business. But what Paul is confronting here, these are religious works for this the sake of establishing your own righteousness. In other words, if you don't keep these commandments, if you don't observe these days, even though God didn't tell you to observe these days, you're not really righteous. You're not really holy. In fact, you're probably not even saved to begin with. You ever hear things like that coming from Christians in today's time? If you're not XYZ, now think about some of them. Well, if you don't go to the right type of denomination, I don't even know if you're saved to begin with. I've heard that applied to every denomination that I've ever heard of. I mean, I don't know that I've ever met a primitive Baptist that said, if you're not a primitive Baptist, you probably aren't going to heaven because we're pretty much the opposite perspective on that. But I I have heard it said, oh, he goes to a primitive Baptist church, he's probably not saved. Oh, he goes to a southern Baptist church, he's probably not saved. Oh, he goes to a Catholic church, he's probably not saved. Oh, he goes to a Methodist church, he's probably not saved. You just want to ask these people, who died and made you judge of the universe? Because last time I checked, that's not a position that you occupy, rightly. There are some others, though. You, you think about it. And now, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on my own toes here for a minute. Sometimes we who homeschool our kids think, if you don't homeschool your kids, you're just not a good parent. You're not righteous enough. Let me just tell you, that's not true at all. I've met some terrible homeschool parents. I've met some homeschool parents that I'm thinking, I don't, I don't want... Y'all just go over there and do your thing, you know, back to home church with you. Because there's just, <laughs> there's just this, 
air of, whoo, these people are really, really full of themselves over there. They, and they judge everything you do. We really don't think your kids are holy enough. Well, I don't either. You know, they don't think I'm holy enough. That's because we're all rotten sinners. What are you talking about? I'm not doing this to be holy enough. I'm doing this because I want to, you know, have freedom to go to my parents when I want to go to my parents and not have to, you know, go before a magistrate if we're late to school, which we probably would be. You know, there's a lot of reasons we homeschool, but it, let me tell you, it does not make me any more holy or even better of a parent than somebody that uses a public or private school. Can we all say amen to that? We all didn't say amen to that, but anyway, I'm sure, I'm sure it was in your heart. Um, there are things that we do that we think makes us more holy, and we should understand that holiness comes from Jesus Christ. Holiness doesn't come from the things that we do. And whether it be going to church every Sunday, I do extra, I go on Wednesday nights too. You really ought to give me some recognition for that. Uh, we, we need to understand that all that we do, we do because we love Jesus. We don't do it because we think it makes us more holy than somebody else. How do I know if, which that I'm doing? Doing it because I love Jesus or doing it because I think it makes me more holy? Well, when you look at someone who doesn't, do you think you're better than them? And if you look at them and you think I'm better than them, then chances are you're doing that to establish your righteousness in your eyes rather than simply because you love Jesus. So that's the test. Think of it in your mind. Am am I thinking that I'm a better person because I'm at church today? Praise God. I think we have just about everybody here. I was looking around trying to count people that are absent. I'm like, we have nearly everybody here. That means it's not going to happen again for about a year. So I'm extra excited today. We may have a two-hour sermon just because I get you all at one time. We probably wouldn't have everybody here if it were a two-hour sermon. Anyway, anyway, if I'm thinking I'm better than X, Y, Z because I'm at church today, then that's, that's the problem. And that lets me know that, hey, wait a minute. I'm starting to be like the threat here to the Colossians. Or, again, I use the example of, of homeschooling kids just because it popped into my mind, but... If I think of me and anything I do, and that makes me feel better or more holy than someone else, then I am being affected by a legalism, and I need to mortify that. I need to put it to death. Because nothing, nothing that I do makes me look better in the sight of God. Our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. And so nothing that I do makes me more holy in the sight of God. Where did I get my holiness? I got it from the same place you did. I got it from Jesus. And guess what? His holiness cannot be improved upon. If he gave me his righteousness and his righteousness is perfect, what in the world am I going to add to that? Nothing. Nothing at all. This is why we want to end today with chapter 3 and verse 1. If If ye then be risen with Christ, set your affections on things above. In other words... Put those eyes back on Jesus. Put those eyes back on Jesus. As you go do the things I'm about to tell you to do, because chapter 3 has a lot of things that we're to do. I hope that you can see the difference in doing things because you love Jesus and doing them because you think it makes you holy. You might think, what's the big difference between those two? It makes a world of difference in your mind and in your peace and in the way that you deal with others around you. Let no man therefore judge you, because you're complete in Christ. Therefore, we let no man judge us 
about not doing works for righteousness' sake. Let no man therefore judge you in, we've got a list of things, meat, drink, holy days, new moons, or Sabbath days. And again, we know these aren't Roman holidays because whatever sort of days he's talking about are a shadow of things to come. Only the Old Testament law and its holy days were shadows of things to come. So we're learning, obviously, about some sort of a threat from some sort of Judaizer. By the way, this problem was not unique to the church at Colossae. In fact, all the way back in Acts chapter 15, we find the origin of this threat to Gentile Christians. In Acts chapter 15, there were Pharisees that came down from Jerusalem, and they taught the brethren, saying, "'Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved.'" From Jerusalem to Antioch, you have Jewish believers, Pharisees that come to Gentile believers and they say, unless you keep the law in this regard, you cannot be saved. Paul and the rest of the ministers begin to argue and there's a sharp contention about this issue. And so they go back to Jerusalem. They gather a council, the council of Jerusalem. They gather Peter and the other apostles and James and they begin to hash this out. And by the time that it gets there, it's not just you've got to be circumcised to be saved. By the time they get to Jerusalem, it's you've got to be circumcised and keep all the law of Moses to be saved. That's the problem with legalism too. If you say there's just one thing you've got to do, well, that one thing suddenly becomes two, and that thing then becomes three, and then four, and then five. And you can see this. You had popularized a hundred years ago, accept the Lord as your Savior, and you can go to heaven. Then these other preachers come say, no, you've got to accept Him as Lord and Savior. And so then people come and add to that, well, no, you've got to repent and believe, and you've got to hold out faithful or it wasn't really real. And the next thing you know, you've got Phariseeism all over again. How are people saved? By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 15. When, when that issue gets hashed out, Peter stands up and he says, you are trying to put a yoke of bondage on the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And so, anything other than salvation by grace is bondage. That's the threat here. And it was one of the earliest threats. It affected the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you. They had fallen from grace, as it were, not that they had lost the grace or the salvation that God had given them, but they had fallen from a belief in grace. They departed from grace. They thought that they had to establish their righteousness by the things that they had done, not understanding that the law is not for us to be righteous, but as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, teaching us two things, by the way. The number one, we are all sinners because that law condemns every single one of us. And number two, that whatever it was that was to appease God's wrath was to be pure and holy and without blemish, because all those offerings were to be. You see, the law tells us our sinfulness, and it tells us of the sinless Savior, the sinless Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these people, I always think of 1 Timothy chapter 1, they desired to be teachers of the law, understanding not the things that they even said. I'll give you that instead of paraphrasing it. 1 Timothy chapter 1 
7, they desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. That's a biblical way of saying they have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're talking about. Does it stop them from talking? Never stopped anybody from talking. But they have no idea what they're talking about. And again, and I need to move on from this point, those types, do not let them judge you. Do not let them put you in bondage. Don't hear their words in your conscience and in your ear like the 1980s cartoons where you got the angel on one shoulder and the devil in the other talking to you, talking in your ear. Don't let the people that judge you for not doing what they tell you you're supposed to do that you don't find in this book, don't let them judge you. Don't hear their condemnations in your mind and think less of yourself when you're doing your best to serve the Lord Jesus simply because you love Him, but you're not as impressive as they want you to be in their eyes. Let them not judge you. Now, regarding the specifics, first of all, meat. And we simply take this to mean the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. They couldn't eat shrimp, couldn't eat pork, couldn't eat catfish. You know, there were millennia when there were no dietary restrictions given by God. In the flood of Noah, after the flood, when God sends them back out into the world, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, he does give them one dietary restriction that the apostles reiterated in the New Testament, and that is, do not eat something with the blood in it. Why is that? Because it's not healthy. Don't, don't eat something with blood in it. You say, I like my steaks rare. That's not blood. It's been bled in the, in the butcher house. <laughs> That stuff that's coming out of it is, is not blood. But Scripture does condemn us, or, or prohibit us rather, from eating blood, eating an animal that's raw, and God does that for, I'm sure, many reasons, but the greatest of those is that you're going to get sick. You ever had salmonella? You ever had food poisoning? Now, when you think, well, why does God tell me I can't do that? Just remember the last time you had food poisoning, and it suddenly makes a lot of sense. Okay, it makes sense. God's telling you that not to be mean or to tell you, do this so you could be holy. I don't make you any less holy. He's telling you not to eat animals that are raw because you will get sick and you might die. The dietary restrictions were given to Israel to show that there's a difference between the clean and the unclean. Now, based upon what I've already said about the law being our schoolmaster, what is the unclean? Well, that would be us. What is the clean? Well, that would be Jesus. But once Jesus has made us clean, the purpose of those laws are no more. He fulfilled the law. He kept it to a jot and a tittle. He died as if he had been guilty of it, though he had never violated it. And when he did, he fulfilled it. He didn't destroy it. That is to say, cut it off prematurely. But he fulfilled it. He brought it to its proper conclusion. And since he brought it to its proper conclusion... There is no dietary restriction to be given to God's children in a ceremonial sense. You're not less holy if you eat bacon than somebody that doesn't eat pork or shrimp or catfish. In fact, here in Alabama, I honestly think that those are our favorite foods, right? Pork, shrimp, catfish. I mean, that's like, hey, that's what we ate all week for a lot of us. You go on vacation, that's literally what you buy to eat. You know, breakfast is bacon. Pork is supper and barbecue and, you know, shrimp. That's what you get when you go out for lunch. They couldn't eat that. But again, that was 
to ceremonially teach them the difference between the clean and the unclean. Paul actually says concerning this sort of thing that God has created these types of meats to be received with thanksgiving, and it's to be sanctified by the Word of God in prayer. And so you pray, you thank God for it, and you eat it with a clean conscience. Years ago, there was a man who had fallen to this very teaching, and it really broke my heart to see because I loved him very much, but he stopped celebrating Easter and Christmas, started keeping the Old Testament festival days, and then stopped eating pork, and the statement that he made was, well, God has done so much for me, the least I can do for him is to not eat pork. And all I could think is, you need the New Testament, bro, because it it answers that question. It answers that question. Let no man judge you in meat. Let no man judge you in meat. Or in drink. What laws might have pertained to drink? The Pharisees actually had religious washings of cups because to them it was unclean to drink out of an open-topped container. And so they rigorously washed their cups. You hear about carnal washings and stuff such as that in Pauline epistles. That's what he's referring to. The Pharisees criticized Jesus' disciples because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. Did God tell them to do that for righteousness' sake? No. Am I going to tell you to wash your hands before you eat? Yes. Is it to make you holy? No. Please wash your hands. Nothing's worse than a stomach virus. This, under soapy water, is all it takes, but it doesn't make you any more righteous than somebody else. Is it wise? Sure. But you see, the motive is different. I wash my hands because I don't want a stomach bug. I hate stomach bugs. I honestly think I would rather have COVID again. Let me not say that aloud. I hate stomach bugs. Nothing is worse to me than a stomach bug. Terrible. I hate it, despise it. But the Pharisees would religiously wash those cups and their hands and everything else because to them it made them more righteous. Did that make them righteous? No. There were also traditions, Jewish, uh, orthodoxly, uh, biblical orthodox traditions, such as the vow of a, of a Nazarite. The Nazarite, for the period of his vow, would not take unto him any wine. By the way, the Bible condemns drunkenness. It doesn't condemn wine. What if you were out to eat and someone saw you have a single glass of wine in moderation? And by the way, if you struggle with alcoholism, do not have a glass of wine. But if you don't and you have a glass to the glory of God, imagine somebody looking at you judging you. Well, let them not judge you because God's Word doesn't say it's sinful to have a glass. It says it's sinful to be a drunkard. Jesus didn't turn water to grape juice, contrary to popular Baptist opinion in 2021. He turned water to wine. He bypassed the fermentation process. It's a miracle. And when they were well drunken at that, explain that one to me. You have to literally do grammatical gymnastics in Greek and hope nobody notices because they don't speak Greek to try to bamboozle people with that idea. It's not sinful to have a glass of wine, but people judge you. See you in a restaurant, Mm, sinners over there, glad we're not like them. Literally what he's talking about. Or in respect of a holy day, or of a new moon, or of the Sabbath days. These three all have reference to the Jewish calendar of festival feast days. If I was a New Testament Christian in the first century, it would have been difficult 
as far as my status in society, if I were around many Jewish people, not to keep Passover, if I were a Jew in particular. What was one of the criticisms they threw at Paul? You being a Jew, make men live like Gentiles. They criticized Paul for that. And so when he gets to Jerusalem, James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, says, hey, we know how you are and you live in liberty and that's all good because you're around Gentiles. But while you're here, would you keep the law to show yourself orderly? James said that. No wonder Paul wrote Hebrews. I think Hebrews is written as a direct response to what Paul saw in Jerusalem. Because there were many Jewish believers... They believed in Christ, but they were still rigid in the law. And if you didn't keep those laws, they would condemn you. They beat Paul and kicked him out of the temple and accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple. It was a serious problem. You're a a Jew and you don't keep Passover? Well, why might I not keep Passover? Because Jesus is my Passover and he fulfilled that festival day. Or tabernacles. What might they have learned from tabernacles that we sojourn here? How about the Feast of Trumpets? It's foreshadowing that Christ comes on the last trump. Or how about the Feast of the Harvest, Pentecost, that there's a harvest in God's kingdom. But all of those days are fulfilled in Christ. We don't observe them anymore. And we should not be judged because of it. New moons, there were observances on the new moon. A few years ago, there were some celebrity preachers that made a whole lot of money selling a bunch of books about the coming blood moon and how all these blood moons indicate something's going to happen. Well, something's always happening. There's always wars and rumors of wars. And no man knows the day of the coming of Christ. So what are you doing other than creating revenue, selling books? That's about all they did other than scaring people half to death. But the Old Testament calendar was on a lunar cycle. Gee, it's a blood moon. Big surprise. It's a lunar calendar. New moons, Sabbath days. You know, there are people today that tell you that worshiping God on Sunday is the mark of the beast. Last time I checked, going to church on Sunday didn't put a mark on my hand or forehead. Maybe I should start doing that to freak people out. Let none of them judge you because of Sabbath. The year of Jubilee was a Sabbath. There was a Sabbath year upon the land. And while it's good to give the land a refresh, you're not less holy if you plow your field every year and use nutrients instead of giving it a year off. It is a good idea, but not for holiness' sake. These are shadows of things to come. Now the next, because, okay, we got five minutes left and two more points. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility worshiping angels. This beguile you of your reward is an interesting statement. What we know it doesn't mean and now we transition to angel worship, what it doesn't mean is that someone can take your eternal security from you through teaching heresy. Remember 2 Timothy 2, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knows them that are His. Those words were written in response to the teaching of two heretics who taught the resurrection was past already and overthrown the faith of some, had overthrown the faith of some. Remember John chapter 10, no man can pluck them out of my hand. Remember Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does it mean then to beguile you of your reward? To beguile you of your reward. Not literally, but in their teaching. What do I mean by that? This word 
reward means to rule against, to rule against, when these false teachers tell you you don't do enough good works to be righteous, what are they doing? They're ruling against you. They're robbing you of your reward, and if you listen to them, where does this occur? It occurs in your mind. Now, there's a word that I use a lot because it's one of the most commonly taught New Testament concepts, but false teaching and false teachers rob you of the assurance of your salvation, the joy of your salvation. When you listen to them, oh, I've not done enough good works, I've not kept these days, I must not really be righteous and holy, I must not be right with God. They're robbing you in your mind of your reward, of what God has given you. And it's a reward that He earned, by the way. Let no man beguile you as you worship angels. You will lose your, in your mind, your reward. So what does it mean to worship angels? Well, it was common for these people to invoke the names of angels. You might could have heard one of them say, Michael, come help me. Gabriel, come help. Sounds like it's a wonderful life, doesn't it? Contemporary example. What would be a modern example of that? We had a conversation, a brother here and I, last week about this. Praying to the saints. Asking a departed saint to help you. Calling upon your ancestors to help you. Not a big leap from one to the other. Who is the only one that you are to pray to? Your Father which is in heaven through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. We pray directly to God. These people would invoke angels in prayer. They were also unhealthily obsessed with the hierarchy of angels. Scripture doesn't say a lot about the hierarchy of angels. We know there's an archangel, an archangel. We know that that's Michael. We know that there's a messenger angel, Gabriel, that has been sent to relay messages throughout human history, but that's about all that we know. God doesn't tell us a lot about it. Maybe He doesn't because we would be so obsessed with that that we would take our eyes off of Christ. What might some contemporary examples be? Is this very much unlike our celebrity and superhero obsessions? Why in the world do I care what a Hollywood movie star says in California about an issue in my life? Why do I care? Well, because people worship things that they shouldn't worship. They give them power. I don't care what celebrities and movie stars and rock stars and politicians and anybody else says about any other issue in this life. Who died and made you Einstein? You know, I don't care what you say. You have no power over me. Don't give them power. He describes this as being puffed up, not holding the head, which is Christ. In other words, you've taken your eyes off Christ. Now, lastly, lastly... Asceticism. Asceticism is rigid self-denial. By the way, the New Testament presents self-denial as biblical. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Asceticism takes that concept and warps it and pollutes it. Yeah, we deny ourselves. We don't do things that are sinful, and we live for God's glory, and we do everything we do to the glory of God, and we seek to help others before we help ourselves. We look not every man on his own things, but on the things of others. 
But this asceticism is inward-pointed self-denial to make myself holy. Well, I'm not going to eat meat, or I'm not going to drink but water, or I'm going to withdraw myself from society and live on a monastery as a monk and wear a brown robe and you know, shave the top of my head. I don't know what that's all about. And most people try to cover the bald spots on the top of their head and walk around, you know, hitting myself in the head with a board. I don't know. But I'm going to harm myself to make myself more holy. Paul says concerning that, Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of this world, if, if you're dead and risen with Christ, why would you be subject to the ordinances of this world? If the world tells you, you've got to do this to be holy, and Jesus didn't, and you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to pay them any attention. I know that this message has been a little more scrambled than it usually is, and I've not, a, I've not obeyed very rigidly the outline, and it's been off the cuff, and there's been a lot of examples from our modern present day, but I hope, I hope that it's one that has opened your eyes and relieved your burdens. Paul summarizes their teaching in verse 21 with touch not, taste not, handle not. Years ago, as I was a young man in college, there was a preacher, and bless his heart, he never really got the context of Scripture, and it was always a soundbite extracted, which is always dangerous, and we criticize other people for that. He took this touch not, taste not, handle not as an exhortation against sin, but in the context it's not, Paul is parroting, as it were, the teaching of the ascetics, asceticism, that you must not touch, you must not taste, you must not handle in order to make yourself more holy. Paul warns against this in 1 Timothy chapter 4 when prophetically he says that the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy. How? Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. What could be examples of that in, in church history? If you want to be a preacher... You shouldn't be married. Where in God's Word did God ever say, if you want to be a preacher, you can't be married? Never. In fact, in the requirements to be a bishop, he must be the what? <clears throat> Husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. Celibacy among the ministry. And I'll spare you the wicked details I have read in church history that have been caused by that sort of thing. Let's just say... It wouldn't fit in a movie that they would show on television, and they show a lot of filth on television. Touch not, taste not, handle not is literally what the, the ascetics would do, what they would say with regards to thing, things that God says you actually can enjoy. You know what? When we get out of here today, I'm going to go have a big lunch, and I'm going to praise God for it. If I go on vacation and have a glass of wine at dinner, praise God. Praise God. Let me just give you another example. Puritanical people. And this, I'll be, I'll be modest, okay? Puritans and some of the ideas that they're accused of, no intimacy except for the production of children, is not biblical. 
Scripture compares intimacy between husband and wife as drinking abundant from rivers in the streets, but let it be from your own cistern, your own container, and not that of another. In Proverbs 5, when Paul warns against a strange woman, the harlot or the, well, a word that starts with an H, a W-H, sounds like an H. Might I just say that you can enjoy intimacy with your spouse to the glory of God and never let anybody judge you for having a good relationship with your spouse. Misery loves company, and there's a lot of salesmen for that perspective. Whatever it is that God says you can do to His glory, you can do to His glory. And if He didn't say not to do it, and there are a lot of things the Bible says not to do, if he didn't say not to do it, it's something that you can do to his glory. And as you do that to his glory, what do you do? You glorify him in the doing. Praise God for Christian liberty and freedom in Christ. You know what? The, later this month, you may not celebrate Christmas, but I'm going to go and eat like a cow and hang out with my family. And we're going to open presents and we're going to go out in the yard and shoot guns and things and Lord willing, only guns and things. And we'll wander to the lake, and we'll throw rocks, and we'll have a great time in the Lord. And there's going to be somebody looking online with that just grimace that somebody else is having fun, because how dare they have fun? We're going to enjoy life to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Touch not, taste not, handle not is the word that Paul is confronting, not what he is saying. And these are the commandments and doctrines of men, as he would say. He concedes in verse 23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. It looks like it's religious. It looks like, doesn't, don't our carnal minds tell us that looks like it ought to be a righteous religious thing? But that's not the case. It's not the case at all. We'll close today. A whole lot more we could say. Read the first two verses of chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above and not on things on earth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this message, though it's, it's been a little different and one that's a little less structured, Lord, we pray that the points of it will just set those free who hear it, whether in person or online. Thank you, Lord, for our, our congregation that's here today. We love them so much, and we pray, Lord, that as the the Pharisees or the legalists of this world attempt to place this yoke upon our shoulders, that we cast it off and that we remember your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Lord, we want to mortify sin, but we know that things that you have given us and created to be blessings in our lives, we're not wrong for enjoying them. We're not more holy if we abstain for them or from them. Lord, and we pray that we would learn how to have liberty as Christians and do all to the glory of God, enjoying our lives, Lord, because you have, you've given us this world to enjoy. But we know that the chief end of man is to worship you and enjoy you forever. So, Lord, we set our affections on things above, understanding that if we're looking at Christ, then prisons would palaces prove we can enjoy all that we do here in this world to your glory. Forgive us of our many sins, we pray in Jesus' name, and we say together, Amen.